I is for identity, ideology, and image. Us versus them, the eternal myth and paradox, adapted from Stella and Nera's journals. 1. Identity and the Scarcity Economics of Self After we met Alec, Jackson remarked, When I meet a person, I don't like it if he immediately starts talking shit about other people. I don't want to hear about which groups he is against, but what he is doing himself. Well, Jackson, I think in his own crippled way, Alex was trying to tell you what he's doing. What he's doing is simply being against the cliques he was talking about. Perhaps he has no notion of how to do anything more positive than to take an opposing stance. He's certainly not the only one. Competitive human relations depend on and perpetuate a feeling of impoverishment in the individual, a scarcity economics of the soul. For in the status quo, she is unable to do what she wants, and at the same time, she must feel this helplessness and poverty of life to be willing to play instead of the loser's game of powers. To assuage this feeling of impoverishment, the individual seeks, more than mere physical possessions, which are just a mean to this end, identity, the consolation for lack of freedom. If I can't, at least I am. Identity, as a concept, works in terms of contrast. One is a fill-in-the-blank, as opposed to the others who are not. Thus, to the desperate lost soul of modern society, nothing is more precious than opponents, people to despise, so he can reassure himself of his own worth, as a faithful patron of Brandeck's ideology, for example. The young activist, though heretofore unaware of it, has quite a stake in maintaining the alienation of others, and it should not be surprising when he acts superior, threatening, etc., in order to maintain the distance between himself and the normal people. To be effective at acting radically, rather than just acting radical, one must be disinterested in being radical or an activist, but only desire to help make radical things happen. So no more stupid conflicts and infighting, for heaven's sake. In a system which is conflict systemized as social relations, in which society is a network of struggles arranged as social structure, getting along is practically the definition of the radical act. Until we are able to leave our identities behind, Whenever we come together, it will merely be a case of images meeting and clashing, with the humans behind them unable even to see each other. 2. Fight war and wars. This being the case, we can't spend all our energy on our efforts simply to defeat the state, corporate tyranny, etc. For even if we do succeed, as long as most people are unable to work together, and thus unaware of their own potential, we can only be another vanguard-slash-ruling party. Under such conditions... The struggle with the state is just another power struggle substitute for free action. We need to strive simultaneously for freedom from external constraints and for the strength to love and forgive and cooperate. And for this project, we absolutely must be ready to shake off our need for identity in the traditional sense. What we need most now are ways to speak that can give others voices of their own, contrary to the aforementioned social scarcity economics, in which the very act of speaking monopolizes expression and denies it to others. Ways to act that can activate, these will be the weapons no power can defeat. What is needed above all, then, is the self-confidence to talk with and listen to others, to find magic tricks by which old conflicts can be superseded and people like Alec and his rival factions discover ways to coexist and support each other. For revolution is not making everyone the same in their ideologies or relations with each other, but simply establishing mutually beneficial relations between different individuals and groups. I would do better myself to think about how Alec and I can transcend our predictable interactions instead of just analyzing him in a way that makes me feel so much smarter and more mature. Editor's Introduction 
Possibly the best text any of us have written on this subject is a letter Nadia once sent to a friend in response to an article he had written with her help. Her original title for the piece had been The Political Struggle is the Struggle Against the Political, which he changed to Against the Shallowness of the Political. So here is her letter reprinted from his private collection. Remember, whatever you believe imprisons you. Dearest E, no, you haven't understood what I'm talking about at all. In your hurry to purchase for yourself the image of political activist, or worse, theorist, whatever that is, you've concluded that everything must be political, whatever that is. For the farther you expand the meaning of any word, the blurrier it becomes and the more useless. Once everything is political, then political means nothing all over again, and we have to start from scratch. So, assuming political isn't just a meaningless all-purpose word, of course, there are political ways to look at every issue, including one's own mortality. I wasn't trying to deny that. That, in fact, is exactly my point. Once you begin to think of yourself as political, once you start to think in terms of analysis and critique, worse yet, to think of yourself as having a critique, you come to approach everything on those terms. You try to fit everything into your analysis. Being political becomes a cancer that spreads slowly to every corner of your being, until you can't think about anything except in terms of class struggle or gender or whatever. And there is no analysis, no ideology, because that's what we're talking about here with your insistence on the politics of living and the theory of politics, broad enough to capture everything that life is. An ideology, just like an image, is always something you have to purchase. That is, you must give up a part of yourself in return for it. That part of yourself is every aspect of the world, every deliciously complex experience, every irreducible detail that won't fit into your framework you so proudly constructed. Sure, you can look at oral sucks and sunsets and love songs and really good Chinese food in terms of political issues, or even approach them in a way that is political in a far less superficial sense. But the fact is that when you're there in those moments, there are things that can escape any kind of comprehension, let alone expression, let alone analysis. Living and feeling are simply too complicated to be captured completely by any language, or any combination of languages. Just like that fucking half-wit Plato, the casualty of ideology, which I'm begging you not to be, comes to doubt the reality of anything he can't symbolize with language, political or otherwise, because he for he's forgotten that his symbols are only convenient generalizations to stand in place of the innumerable unique moments that make up the universe. I can anticipate your response. My critique of the political is itself a political evaluation, a part of my ideology. And so it is. I write to you so vehemently about this because it's an issue I'm really struggling with right now. I find myself turning everything into a political tract or critique possessed by what my ideology described as a capitalistic compulsion to transform all of my feelings and experiences into objects, that is, into theories I can carry around with me. My values have come to revolve around those theories, which I show off as proof of my intelligence and importance, the same way a bourgeois man shows off his car as proof of his worth. My life isn't about my actual experience anymore. It's about the struggle. When I'd wanted that struggle to be about centering my life on my experiences, not some new substitute. I'd like to say this letter is my last stand against the all-consuming demands of the political, but that was probably long ago, the last time I was able to reflect on something without the political ramifications even occurring to me. Careful what you wish for, E, when you say everything is political. I think part of this pathological need to systematize everything comes from living in cities, incidentally. Every single thing around us here has been made by human beings and has specific human meaning attached to it. So when you look around, instead of seeing the actual objects that are around you, you see a forest of symbols. When I was staying in the mountains, it was different. I would go walking, and I wouldn't see don't walk signs. 
I would see trees and flowers, things that have an existence beyond any framework of human meaning and values. Standing under a starry sky, there, gazing at the silent horizon, the world felt so immense and profound that I could only stand before it mute and trembling. No politics could ever provide a vessel deep enough to hold those moments. Not to say there's no reason for us to conceptualize things, e, because of course that's useful sometimes. But it's a means, and not the only means, to a much greater end. That's all. I'll leave you with this, my own poor translation of a line from the farewell letter Mao Zing's mistress wrote him shortly at the so-called success of the Chinese so-called communist revolution. It's sadly predictable that the only way you can come up with to celebrate the liberation you feel at leaving the old system behind is by coming up with a system of liberation, as if such a thing could exist. But that's what we can expect from those who have never known anything other than systems and systematizing, I guess. With your love, Nadia.